You're listening to Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. Guys, I'm so excited to announce my new podcast. I have a podcast called Rosie and BJ Save the World, where I try to solve all of the world's crazy problems that are going on because there are so many problems and there are so many solutions. But I am so excited today to have a very special guest with a new book coming out, the author of The Art of Being Yay, Aiden Park. Aiden! Yay! (laughs) Yay! Hi, Rosie. Thanks for having me. So tell us about your new book. This book is autobiographical. It's very positive and very empowering, and that's what I love about it. Um, But it's not all, you know, roses and rainbows. (laughs) There's a lot of um, negative things that happen in your life or perceived negative things that you transform into positive. Um, Tell us a little bit about that. Well, yeah, yeah, you're right. It wasn't all uh, rosy. (laughs) (laughs) Unintended. I'm a professional. <laughs> um, okay, so yeah, like I had a rough go of it to start, really. Uh, you know, I'll just like give you the short and sweet of it. It's like, you know, I had a lot of difficulty. I moved here when I was nine from Korea, South South Korea. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, you know, I moved here and I grew up with my like grandmother in her government housing and like she didn't speak English. I didn't speak English, so whenever a piece of mail would arrive, we'd just, like, stare at each other and shrug. <laughs> like, <laughs> like, we didn't really... So I had, like, really kind of no parenting. And uh, I graduated high school, and I found out I was undocumented. The way I found out was I couldn't go to college. And I also couldn't get a job. So you, so didn't, know that you're an, you didn't know that you were undocumented? I did not know that I was undocumented. That's crazy. I didn't know there was a thing. I didn't so know that you're was like, a so you're a dreamer. You had no. You were brought here not by your own will, right? I I was brought. I was. Yeah, I guess technically I am a dreamer. Yes. Huh? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I didn't suggest it. Although I was really excited about coming here. Like, I didn't. Co- I didn't suggest it. <laughs> yeah, I, okay. Like my favorite movie is Sister Act, right? And my mom and I owned a video store in Korea, and so when we worked there, you know how kids watch like the same movie over and over. I watched Sister Act so many times. I thought that's what America was like. And so when, when she said, like, we're moving to America, I was like, oh, my God, Whoopi Goldberg, <laughs> singing nuns. <laughs> I was really excited. Uh, but when I got here, it was quite different. You know, when you can't speak the language and, uh, you did know, you there's no emotional m- support, it did, screws you up. <laughs> aw, did you guys memorize the song from Sister Act and you're like, singing it like that's the only English you know? <laughs> oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I have a bit about that. You've seen it, right? Um, I haven't seen your sister act bit, but I have seen your stand-up. Really? Um, so I want to tell everyone you're a stand-up. That's how I know you. But you're not just a stand-up. Um, and this book shows that you're a motivational speaker. Um, you're uh, a master um, neurolinguistic pro- programmer <laughs> at NL- NLP. Um, oh. I- I've had another NLP guest on the podcast. But for those of um, the listeners who don't know what that is, uh maybe you can shed some light on it. Yeah, sure. Okay. So I'm going to finish the last thing because it's going to give a better framework. Cause right now it's just that, Hey, I'm undocumented. So <laughs> I'm undocumented. I got my citizenship, uh, later afterwards, but, um, how did you get what, your citizenship? Oh, my grandmother put in a request like 10 years prior to my hanging awesome. 18. So she thought that I would get all the paperwork process. Go grandma. Yeah, my grandma did, yeah, because she was a citizen. Okay. Actually, she wasn't a citizen. She was a resident. She became a citizen eventually. She was legal, though. She was legal, 
But the thing about her that's so funny, I keep veering off into topics, but my grandma's amazing. Okay. She didn't speak a lick of English, right? And if, it's a, if you're a citizen, you can, uh, you know, sponsor somebody to be a resident, uh, you know, and it takes like two years or something. If you are a resident, you can't sponsor people, you know, especially like grandsons, right? Mm-hmm. So what she did was she tried to become a citizen, but they don't give you a translator. So she phonetically memorized the questions that would be on the citizenship test. Oh my gosh. Yeah. She's an actress. I mean, she, yeah. <laughs> like this. I would tell her, I would ask her, I'd be like, hey, grandma, like, you know, she'd give me a list of questions. I'd be like, who was the first president? <laughs> and she would be like, Georgie Washington. <laughs> hey, you got it. And you know how she failed? She failed because she was so ready to go with the phonetics. And they and she entered. And they asked her to raise her right hand. And she didn't know that that was part of it to swear in. Oh, my god! so she failed it on the swearing in process. And they were like, you can't take the test because you can't speak English. Oh, my gosh. That's so sad. I know. But it's very cute. Anyway. Very okay, so cute, very sad. couldn't get a job. But she's a citizen. Getting now. HIV as a hooker, long, you know, that's the long and short of it. And then I ended up in the empowerment world because someone got me an empowerment, uh, like seminar, right? Because I couldn't, I didn't have any way to educate myself, and they thought I could use it. Well, let's so talk about the- that because you kind of, you kind of um, glazed over. I got HIV and I was a hooker, which is a big deal. <laughs> Not to laugh at that. I, I guess it's, I mean, for me, it's like everyday life. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I mean, okay. So I, I mean, what's there to explain? <laughs> I hooked up with a very conservative uh, uh, politician and uh, supervisor in uh, San Francisco. So what I see is that you're kind of downplaying this. Um, and I think the listeners would be very interested to hear because Actually, that is something very empowering. You know, a lot of people that are um, in the sex industry can go quite a different direction than being empowered and going into comedy and being what I would consider a huge success. And so I think that's not something to be glazed over. Sure. Let's get into it. (laughs) I mean, I was, you know, uh, the thing is like sex work, I think is great. If, you know, if you want to do that, that's, that's awesome. I don't judge myself or anybody else for having done it. You know, I talk very openly about it. Um, I was not taking precautions, taking my safety into account, right? So I was just anybody. Like, I would take money and I would, I did not care whether I was, you know, protected or unprotected or whatever. Um, and actually, if I look back on it, like, I really liked being wanted somewhere, you know? Uh, because I felt so much throughout my, uh, you know, years of growing up, unwanted. Uh, I, did, I also glazed over this, but when I first moved here to the States, uh, that was a really traumatic time because I didn't speak English. I was also uh, overweight, right? And I also was failing out of all my classes. And in Korea, I was a very popular student with straight A's and people enjoyed my sense of humor. Now, I don't have my sense of humor to communicate with these people. They don't accept that I'm fat. They can't understand my language. And Everything I mean, that made you who you were was taken away, in a sense, even though you were the same person. Right. 
in addition to that, I moved here with my mom. And my mom actually uh, got a boyfriend. And so she had to move across the country with him to support him through dental school. The story behind that is she told him we were undocumented. He, when she said, I'm not going with you, threatened her and blackmailed her and said, I will report you and your son to the INS if you do not come with me and support me uh, through dental school. So she essentially held her hostage. At that point, there's no resources. This is before internet. So here's this woman between stuck, you know, rock and a hard place. And so she went. She thought that was. That's how you ended up with your grandmother. Right. And, but it was also a very lonely time because my grandmother, God bless her, she's not emotional. She's just very, you know. And so growing up, feeling, moving here, all of a sudden, failing from class, you know, uh, not being popular or well-liked or by anybody. I had rarely any friends, you know. Uh, I was showing behavioral problems because I had such frustration. Like, I couldn't hold attention. I was so upset because my mom is gone. I'm with my grandma, who I love, but my mom's gone, right? Yeah. So here I am. Like, I'm fend for yourself. Around that same time you hit uh, puberty. And the fact that I'm gay uh, very becomes very prominent. At that point, I, my family was Baptist. My family was very religious. And I lined up with that for the first years of my life very strongly. And so I did feel like during that time, very much alone to, to the extent like, it's like, you know what? I, I'm completely alone here. And even God doesn't fucking like me. So what the fuck is there anymore? Like, I, and no one to talk about it with. Mm-hmm. And just being alone in that, you know? Uh, that, I think, I, I had to resolve some of that. Because in my later teen years, all my actions were based on a reaction to that or a reaction against that to never having that happen again. So what were my strategies? What were the stra- what's a strategy that a young person would take to avoid that, okay? Getting a bunch of men and saying yes to anybody. Mm-hmm. And feeling wanted. Right. You know, that's a strategy, right? So I took it and uh, and, that, and that's okay. That's what everybody has different strategies. But uh, at that point, you know, it really didn't care whether I lived or died. Like there was a, a period there where it's just like, man, it didn't matter. It just did not matter. And that's when I go back to what I originally said, where I, you know, where you were just glazing over it and saying, well, I was a hooker, whatever. And this is very important to understand, because as I mentioned, um, no judgment, but you could have gone down quite a different path. And what you decided to do actually was after becoming empowered, you decided to change that path. So let's talk a little bit about NLP, because we did kind of go sideways. And I do want the listeners to understand what exactly that is. Sure. NLP. Oh my God, I got a strawberry in my tooth. Whatever. <laughs> so NLP is Neuro Linguistic Programming. It's the idea that perception, uh, per- perception is like you project your idea of the world. So everybody has a mental map, right? Uh, of all kinds of things. So we can both agree that uh, there's gravity and this uh, chapstick stick is red, right? Or the painting behind me is green. Those are objective truths. We all have subjective truths 
that we treat like objective truths. Exactly. Right? So if somebody is raised in a very negative environment, maybe their viewpoint on the w- world is they have a, t- a set of um, tinted glasses. I would, would, would you say something like that, where they yeah. see the world with these tinted glasses on and everything about their reality is, is shaped by this. And they really believe that it is objective truth. Right. And then there's this interesting part of your brain called the reticular activating system. So, <laughs> so I'm into brain science, right? So um, that's part of uh, neuro-linguistic programming. There's a part of your brain that will literally uh, generalize, uh, delete, and distort any incoming information to match what it already exists, right? The programming. <laughs> the programming. The programming, right? Yeah. Because the programming is actually there because it's essential for your survival. You have determined that those set of beliefs keep you safe. It's like when you see a bear, it's like, oh, a big, big brown with sharp teeth. Bear, danger, run, right? Yeah. So you have made people make decisions about the world and hold them as truth. And it's a part of a survival mechanism. The reticular activating system is there to only... Uh, accept information that uh, matches your, um, uh, like, uh, that is uh, important to you. So we have, what, 300,000 words that are thrown at us every day. You only see words that matter. It's like all of a sudden you get a Honda and everybody's driving a Honda, right? You know what I mean? Exactly. Or maybe you're a mom and you go to the store and all you see is stuff for little kids. Right, right. That's what you're focusing on. But that doesn't mean that the other stuff isn't there. That doesn't mean that a Toyota doesn't exist. Right. It's just that you are focused on Hondas. Well, the thing is that um, when people have these uh, safety precautions, like as a mental map, when they have incoming information that is of contrast to the safety thing that they're holding, they will defend it. So if someone says the world is hopeless and they're holding on to that because that concept keeps them from feeling like shit, then someone could say, the world is not hopeless. It's full of hope. They will argue for this. And that's a mental map, right? It's also, it's, it is. It, and it's also known as cognitive dissonance. It's when people actually receive more, more and more facts, um, but they just like block it out. They block out the facts and they yeah. only hold on to their beliefs. And that happens a lot as we've seen in politics and religion and other, um, because politics and religion are both belief systems, Right. And so that's why there's so much conflict in those areas um, in society oh. because people are holding on to those beliefs so tightly that it doesn't matter what other points of view people bring into, they will defend their personal political belief or um, religious belief or whatever their belief is because it's not a fact, it's a belief. And Uh-oh. so they see those subjective realities as objective truth. Yeah, it's a need on their, so they, they need to do it for something, right? To so, feel fulfilled, to feel safe, whatever, yeah, to feel they right. God, they have to defend that. If that God goes, their meaning goes. So yeah. it's a psychological construct. Exactly. Yeah. So that idea was really cool because then if you're, it's not even about fixing, it's not just about awareness. Right. So I, I, I'm playing with this concept. Like if you're aware of it and not needing to, Fix the situation. If you're in a situation and you are just aware of how that plays out or whatever, then you can stay uh, easy 
and kind of make the best decision for you. So if I'm aware of my mental constructs, huh, I have this belief that really nobody ever wants me around, huh? And then your reticular activating system actually, any evidence that matches it, it'll, it'll hold on to it as evidence and make that stronger. Any evidence that is not uh, uh, right with that, it will defend. So it's just getting stronger and stronger unless you go, okay, that I think is a construct. Let's just be aware that it's a construct. Okay. And then it kind of resolves itself a little bit, you know? Well, this is actually really, really amazing and empowering information because this means that you can um, help to, once you're aware of this, you can reshape your uh, belief system into something that serves you better. Because a lot of times these belief systems that we're talking about were developed in a traumatic situation, in yeah. a dysfunctional childhood, in a negative um, upbringing or something like that, or traumatic experience. And so they might not necessarily even be valid today, right? So your life that you had when you were nine years old, 10 years old is absolutely completely different than what's going on today. And so if you're not learning and growing about your belief system, then you're actually being controlled by the the mind of a seven-year-old, a yeah. six-year-old, you know? Well, it's so interesting because, okay, uh, this topic is so interesting to me because I think the whole thing, okay, when you're born, right? Your entire existence is dependent on your parents, right? You can't fend for yourself. You have to rely on your parents, right? Yes. You are powerless for yourself. So, but what happens is the parents actually... When we discipline our kids, we go, good, Rosie, you uh, put the dishes away. Bad, Rosie, you're crying or whatever. And so we get this good and bad. And the thing is, when the parents treat you that way, when they say you're bad, your system goes, danger to my survival. Because it's a distancing act against you. And you need them for survival. Because you're right? helpless. You're a child. Yeah. Right. So you have to line up with their concept of good, right? That becomes a problem because we carry that into adulthood and we don't even know. So we have these beliefs that are like, oh, this is good, this is bad, this is good, this is bad, that are programmed, you know? Yeah. And we hold on to it as if our survival depends on it and it no longer does. And not just that, but our parents may be wrong. They may be unhealthy. They may have all sorts of things. Uh... Oh, unhealthy parents? No. <laughs> They may um, be holding on to belief systems that aren't even theirs that are passed down from uh, what's called intergenerational trauma, which is when, you know, maybe your grandparent or a great grandparent had some issue that they never resolved. And then they're putting that on you or putting that on your parents and then your parents are putting that on you. And so there's a lot of unconscious stuff happening here. And so what I'm saying is that you as a now, what is your actual title? Your master NLP for neuro linguistic programming. No, no, I know what NLP stands for. Practitioner. <laughs> practitioner, <language>. okay. <laughs> master practitioner, it's like a degree. It's like, ah. Oh, you're, so that. you're a master practitioner. And oh. so what is so empowering about all this is that someone can um, can learn about this or work with someone like you as a coach. And they can then learn about their unconscious and um, belief systems and mental maps that they yeah. have had kind of programmed for them. And so we get to then... Uh, work on that and fix that and program our own lives. It's very, very yeah. empowering. It's great. It's, I mean, it's so true. I think I hold strong to this. Your thoughts lead to emotions 
right? So your thoughts will trigger an emotion. Your emotion is what inspires you to take action. So thoughts to emotions to action to results, right? So you have to have your thoughts straight, you know? And your thoughts, your thoughts can lead you down a dark road, like I mentioned, or to writing an amazing book to inspire others. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. I, I really love that. I really, really love that concept. It is. It's a very empowering and positive concept. I think we need more of that because a lot of what um, mainstream society and what is taught, I think, is disempowering. It's saying that something outside of you has the power. You know, if you vote for this politician, they're going to save you, right? Or if you buy this product, it's going to fix you. Not understanding that all of this is internal and mental. Yeah. Well, if they had it their way, the entire world would be helpless and completely dependent on their winning right? Yeah. Like the more helpless you are, the better they are positioned because they can be the, they can promise you that what you need that you can't provide for yourself. So it's very beneficial to keep people feeling helpless. Yes. And you're talking about politicians. You're talking about consumerism, things like that. Yeah. All of it, all of it, everybody interest. If you are helpless and if you, you are, you know, not in charge of your life, it's better position for them to make money off of you, to get your vote, whatever. Exactly. And we've seen that actually with the current political system is that a lot of people are very hopeless. They feel hopeless. And so they're looking towards politicians to solve their problems. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, you know, it's the same thing. It's just, just, you know, like in 20 years, we're just going to be talking about the same thing. It's going to be worse than ever before. Like, <laughs> Quotations. Before. Like, it's like, geez, back when Bush was elected, it was worse than ever before. And then when Obama was elected, it was worse than ever before. Now this again. And it's just like the same, same old story. You think anybody's going to say, actually, we've made a, like, that's not a way to get votes. Fear drive votes, you know? So it's like. Who is going to say, actually, we've had it better than we've ever had it? There's more people that have safe, clean drinking water. There's more people that have safe housing. There's more people. There's actually a TED Talk about this that talks about how things are getting better and better and better by every measurable, um, everything that you can measure, people's health outcomes, people's longevity, every single measure of health and um, prosperity is actually growing because of technology, because of advances in science, because of evolution. And yet people feel that things are getting worse and worse, again, quotations, and worse because they're not understanding that it's all internal. They need to learn to regulate. It's like, okay, 12 years ago when I did summer stock theater in the middle of Pennsylvania, I'd be walking down the street and I would hear chink, chink, chink regularly, regularly. And now here in 2020, I feel like our society has evolved to such a state that it's like, it is actually, that makes you uncool. You're not cool. Like actually like in high school, if you pick on the gay kid and call him a fad, you are not cool. That does not make you cool. So we have involved, but you know, they want to keep pushing the idea that we haven't because it helps their case. But the fact is we have. Yes, it's true. No, we have evolved quite a bit as a people, even Um, you know, to the point that a lot of people are aware, you know, a lot of arguments I've heard um, about racial injustice, about other things. I do think people are not as awful (laughs) 
as the one or two media examples. Also, a lot of people don't understand is that the media is there to sell products and to um, stimulate those fear receptors in your brain. And so they want clickbait. They want those outrageous stories. Um, it's kind of like the typical story of uh, focusing on a plane crash, even though hundreds of planes land safe- safely every day. They're not going to focus on the safe planes because that's just boring. That's just everyday yeah. life. And so that happens a lot. Let's focus on the one extremely radicalized or racialized or upsetting story instead of all of the positive stories. You know, the racism thing is so interesting. I think, you know, the good bad concept from when we were young? Yeah. Where we were like, we have to be good in order to, for our survival. Same thing here. Okay, we live in a society where racism is condemned universally. Nobody's going to sit there, even, you know, fucking you know kentucky i don't know whatever like hillbilly person the most of, <laughs> okay. most of them will not say i like racism and like they're not going to do that <laughs> they don't nobody will you know but this is the problem it's become such a topic of uh, uh unacceptable thought pattern that people will any little bit that they have that exists within them that probably should not be denied they will totally push against it like I'm not racist. The fact is, we're all racist. Yes. Are we willing to admit it to what degree, right? I actually agree with you completely because racism is not about race. Racism is about ego. And so every single person has that prejudice inside them, right? And so it's whether or not you act on it, whether or not you internalize it. Um, And so I think people that say that they're not racist, they're not... um, misogynistic they're not sexist or whatever ism right they're lying because we all have that's part of being human is having that internal um dialogue and what happened but i think they're lying because well they're they're not aware i think they're they're not lying i think they're not i think they just are like i'm a good person in order to identify as a good person which is essential for our survival you can't identify as a good person and admit that you're racist if your concept of racism is a bad person. You can't do both. But you part see what of, I'm I understand. Yeah, but what I'm saying is that as part of being a human being, yeah. we all have prejudices and that's okay as long as we don't act on them and internalize them. Does that make sense? Yeah. yeah. I think we should admit it. <laughs> no, I think that's very very healthy. I think it's very healthy. Um, and then we got the other side pushing for, you're racist, admit it. If you can't admit you're racist, you're, you're really off the rocker. And people are not going to respond to that. With, <laughs> right, yeah, right, come on. You know, so please. <laughs> like, it's not working, okay? <laughs> okay. Um, someone's going to turn into this podcast at the wrong time and hear Aiden and Rosie saying, we're racist. <laughs> No, we we love everyone, but we're admitting that all human beings have um, faults and prejudices, and we need to be aware of those to work on them. Um, So you um, have some amazing stories in the book. You talk about your wonderful husband, Michael. Let's let's talk about that, because your book, like I said, even though it's called The Art of Being Yay, and it's all about um, transforming your outlook, there is quite a bit of tragedy that you've transformed. Yeah, so... I uh, took that empowerment yes. workshop and uh, I ended up uh, building a pretty good career. You know, I, I got pretty far in my comedy career. 
uh, I produced a show at the Laugh Factory for a bunch of years. I uh, had a little TV show. Like, I, I mean, I, I got a lot done. And they found this guy, amazing guy, uh, Michael, right, uh, when I was 27. And uh, he was great. You know, he was 20 years older than me. I called him my daddy issues personified, you know. <laughs> Um, he's terrific. And then he got cancer and died. And uh, I literally got ghosted. <laughs> so I say that because I know he would like that joke. So, <laughs> so that was terrible. Yeah. That was that was the worst. That was that was that was the worst. I think it was even more painful than before in, in like high school or whatever. It was really bad. Um, it's like uh, we had this great relationship. Where we really, when we came together, we saw each other. We saw ourselves as a nucleus. It was no longer Aiden and Michael. It was Aiden Michael, right? And we had concern for each other as if they were us, you know. Like, and and uh, we really did. Did we really did? And uh, I resent that. You know, some people think because he's an older white guy and I'm a younger Gaijin. Like, some people think. He was like my sugar daddy. And that's so not true. I just want to clear that up. <laughs> I just want to clear that. If he was my sugar daddy, I was on a low-carb diet. <laughs> Seriously. No, but we loved each other, man. We did. We really, really did. And then he died. And so when you're used to functioning as a nucleus, I mean, some people could say we were codependent. We probably were to a certain extent. But when you're functioning as a nucleus with, with two parts and the one part goes away, the part that's left, I, I just, man, it was rough, you know? <laughs> so, so he died. So how, <laughs> did, how did you transform that experience and well, learn more about yourself? I was like suicidal. I was like, I'm ready to go. I'm just going to fucking kill myself. I don't want to be here anymore. I, I, I don't want to do this. I don't want to do this with a Michael. And uh, I was watching Judge Judy and, um, she was yelling at this Asian lady, just like, you don't have your paper! Like, she was, like, yelling at, like, you need to come to prepare, prepare, or whatever she does. You know how she yells, you know? She's like, oh, God. And I was like, if I kill myself, that's going to be my mom. <laughs> I was like, I can't kill myself. She can't deal with that. I don't know. I was, like, crazy at the time. So I was, that, that was, I was like, okay, well. Fine, I won't kill myself, but I'm not gonna be here feeling like this because this is fucking, this is terrible. Like, why, why, like, I will not. I just refuse. This is not okay. It feels so bad. I have to find a way to get out of this. So, my first tactic was how everybody takes, you know, like, try to improve the world around me, right? So, I was wise and I took actions like, oh, I don't know, going on dates. <laughs> I would leak trauma all over them. I'd be like, hey, Mark, how you doing? Do you have any history of diabetes or cancer in your family? You know, <laughs> like, oh, crazy. Um, and, you know, I tried to work really, really hard. I would work 19 hours a day and do comedy shows. I would book comedy shows and keep myself busy, busy, busy. Go, 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 go. And I had, like, what? That ended up with me getting, like, what? Three panic attacks, trips to the emergency room. I had a panic attack in upstate Washington uh, in the middle of nowhere where I took this job, right? And I was hurled over <laughs> uh, at a gas station. And literally this guy came and he was like, <laughs> he was like, 
can I pray for you? I wasn't even looking up. I was rolled over. And he was like, uh, you know, he was like, can I pray for you? And I was like, yeah, sure. Thinking, you know, thoughts and prayers for your loved one. <laughs> Walked off, you know. Literally, he put his hand on my back, this other hand to the sky, and he goes, Lord Jesus, please help this man. And then these other people came. And now I look up and I'm like, I see this guy who looks like fucking Nickelback, right? With rhinestones on his shirt and sympathetic looking white faces and cows in the background. And I'm like, this is purgatory. This is purgatory. <laughs> this is it. Yeah. So, and then he, you know what's funny? He didn't even buy me a drink. He wasn't even like, okay, can I get you like a soda or help you feel better? How can I help you, man? He prayed and he went. You know, was... <laughs> he summoned the, the uh, energy of Christ. <laughs> <laughs> that was funny. Uh, so I had, a, I had a really, so that didn't work. My strategy of trying to control things around me did not work. And then I had to take another strategy. You know, I had to figure out other ways to be happier. And so what I kind of started doing is implementing my, you know, I had like all those years of uh, empowerment and neuro-linguistic programming. Usually those are applied, directed at tangible results. Getting success, or do you believe that you can be successful or do you, I don't know, whatever. You know, tangible results, money, what have you. I started applying some of those tools for just an emotional result, just so I can feel better. And a lot of it really worked. Um, and so I watched the thought patterns in my head and tried to guide them in the direction of uh, ease and relief. Uh, and I was also given this really great nugget of information uh, by uh, Jackie Monahan. You know Jackie Monahan? I don't. Jackie Monahan, comedian. She thinks she's an alien. Um, and uh, I love her. She is the happiest alien you'll ever meet. She's so awesome. I had lunch with her. I broke down crying. And she goes, Aiden, you need to figure out uh, what it is that Michael gave you emotionally and give that to yourself. And I was like, what is this bitch talking about? You know? <laughs> And then I like thought about it. I was like, okay, like I'm so desperate. I'll try anything. I don't care. And so I was at a supermarket and uh, I had this breakdown. Apparently supermarkets are a, a minefield for people who uh, uh, have lost their loved ones. Aww. So, you know, you'll be shopping for, you know, <laughs> salad and you'll be like, oh, spinach, kale, oh, arugula. You know? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, I had this, um, situation where I started feeling really sad in the cereal aisle. And I was like, okay, if Michael were here, what is the feeling that he would be giving me right now that I think I miss? Other than his physical presence, emotionally. And you know, I was looking at his favorite, Lucky Charms, right? And the thing is, we would always have the same argument in the cereal aisle. Among the two of us, I'm the responsible one. Which means we're like always in trouble, right? We're always in trouble. <laughs> like, if you get this reference, I'm the Romy, he's the Michelle, right? <laughs> I'm only slightly more responsible, but not really. <laughs> so I would always be like, okay, let's get brand flakes for health. And he'd be like, ah, oh, lucky charms for fun. So he would always try to encourage me to have more fun. And I would use him as an excuse to go, all right, Michael, if you want it, and then end up eating most of the box, right? You know what I mean? <laughs> so... It's that permission to have fun. 
nobody's here to uphold that. So at that point, I actually realized I was like, okay, I'm missing that. And I want to take that on and give myself the permission to have fun right now. So I'm getting the lucky charms. And so that was a real turning point because I was like, all right, like, and so I started approaching life that way. I started, um, whenever I missed them, I would stop. And sometimes I, it wasn't successful. I'd just go crying. It doesn't matter. But sometimes I could be like, okay, what is it about Michael that you miss specifically? If he were here, what would he be giving you emotionally? All right. I need security and comfort. Okay. You have a list of friends you could call. You can talk to yourself in terms that Michael would speak to you. You can, um, I don't know, take a nap and provide that comfort. So like empower myself to provide that, which I'm missing that Michael gave me. Right. So is that the yay that you're talking about? Is that the yay that you're trying to teach others? No. <laughs> I mean, that's part of it. It's one of many, you know, things to be aware of in order to reach an authentically joy kind of life, you know, um, that's a tool. And I think that was a really effective tool. Uh, but if you start, actually, that's a good start. Yeah. Like look at life that way. Right. Whenever you experience negativity, when you're sitting in traffic, it's like, ah, traffic. Okay, ask yourself, what is it that you think you would be feeling emotionally if you were not in traffic right now? If you were moving, what is the feeling? I did that with myself in traffic the other day. I was sitting in traffic, ah. <laughs> then I was like, well, what would be the emotional payoff for your not having to sit in traffic? Uh, relief, ease just relaxed. Okay. I turned on some Enya and just fucking channel gave it. as much as I could. Channel you know? it. <laughs> so it's about really being aware about your emotions. The yay comes from an emotional connection. You, you have to honor your emotions and the way we live. So when I started focusing on emotions, I found there's very little out there about emotions. We do not know how this works. We don't know how to manage it. And in our society, what we do is we go, oh, you feel jealous? Oh, are you, a, you feel jealous? You're bad. And so now they're stuffing shit, right? Or I'm tired, suck it up. Or even when I lost my husband, I was like, oh, you know, I'm, I'm sad. What would my friends say? Why don't you come out with us and go to a movie and we'll have a good time, okay? That's their way of caring. But honestly, that actually has an implication that there's something broken. Or something like, wrong with being sad. Right. Yeah. I just lost my husband. I'm sad. I'm sad, man. I think like, a lot of people are not okay with just being. Yeah. And I think that being is very important because when you are being, you feel the emotion fully and then it can be released. Yeah. Well, that's the other part of yay. I think that's so important. It's like... um I found that a lot of the drama, a lot of the unhappiness is self-constructed in the brain. Really, like really a lot, you know, it's, I don't know. It's just like, I don't know. Do you want me to elaborate on that? I don't know. Sure. <laughs> so it's like this. It's like, say you're in a bad financial situation and you open your computer and there's 10 cents in your bank account, right? So you go, oh, there's 10 cents in my bank account. Then we go, oh, God, my mother never taught me about money, and so I have bad money habits. Oh, God, 
And uh, if they were better, then I would be better. And I have really have mental problems. You know, I have mental problems for having the 10 cents in my account. That's a real problem. I should see a therapist. I need to go see a therapist. If I see a therapist and I resolve my money issues, but first I need to resolve my parental trauma. And on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And now we can't deal with the problem. We're dealing with this other problem that is completely constructed. It's not real. It's a, we make it, you know. The mind is a very powerful thing. Yeah, it sucks. That's a sucky thing. And now we have to sit there and detangle this thing while this is happening. So that's drama. We just literally made drama. You know? And I've it's seen, I've seen that happen so much. I've seen that happen with people. Someone leaves a Facebook comment, right? <laughs> and then all of a sudden it's like this whole drama and you don't have to respond to every comment. You don't have to engage with every person. You don't, you're not obligated to um, interact with every single person out there. And I think that's something that people are learning with social media and it can't, it's a constructed, it can become a constructed problem. Yeah. Yeah. There's so much of that and worry. Oh God. You know, like taking some future event that doesn't exist, creating some kind of bad scenario and then worrying about how you might deal with that. That's, that's crazy. That's both are crazy, but we do it all the time and it's normal. So I, so that's really a lot of unhappiness right there. <laughs> so the art of being yay is staying present, accepting everything for exactly what it is. That is the art of being, really that's, it comes down to that. It just comes down to, you know, looking at this marker and not going, marker, you should be a pencil. <laughs> Marker, just walk over and get a pencil. You know, your friends were like, I love trouble. If you don't like them, just defriend them and go find other friends. Like, <laughs> but we spend so much time just trying to. How could he? How she, could he say this? How could she say this? How yeah. dare they? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, how dare? Uh, you know, come on. <laughs> That's so funny. How you know? dare they? And feeling hurt. Dare and feeling you not hurt. be a blonde girl, Rosie. <laughs> how dare you not be Michael? <laughs> yeah so. um so let's talk about your journey in writing this book it took you about a year and a half um, yeah. what inspired you to start getting the pen to paper or the keypad to laptop <laughs> oh. <laughs> okay so i have this mentor right her name is enette morton and enette uh works uh she she was the head of the business department at pepperdine uh and she uh is this wonderful lady uh, who I've known for years. Uh, I met her, I had lunch with her uh, about a week after, uh, about a week, I'm sorry, about a month after Michael died. And she was real worried about me. She was like, real worried. Cut to six months later, I've been applying some of these tools and she notices a big change. She's like, huh, like really? That's what you think. You know, she kind of sees that it's not something I'm putting on for her. It's like genuinely authentic. Yeah. yeah, authentic. And she's like, what is it that you've been doing that you feel like has made a difference? And uh, I told her and she was like, you should write a book. 
uh, I know just the person. Uh, her name is Tessa, and she'll consult you about writing a book. Sure, go talk to her. And I was like, all right. So I called Tessa, and she asked me my story. I told her my story, and she goes, you know what, Aiden? Um, I'm going to uh, give you a sponsorship for my program uh, called Get That Book Done. So you're going to finish this book. I like your story. I like you. I'm going to make sure you finish the book. So she helped me get started uh, on that journey. And she was very gen Both women were very generous to offer that, you know? And so I finished the first draft of the book. <laughs> um, it was initially titled called, uh, Art of Being Gay, except um, <laughs> my managers thought that it would uh, get confused. <laughs> like, <laughs> like they thought that I'm out to turn the world gay. <laughs> That's what happened, and then I didn't like that draft. And around the same time, I talked to another friend, April, who was like, there's educational components in this. You should turn this into a seminar. And so I did. And when I did it, I was like, this is how the book should be laid out. So I took the seminar, and I laid out my book in the way that I laid out my seminar and put that together, and that's how I became uh, came up with the book with a product that I actually liked because the first product I really didn't like. So, <laughs> yeah. That's normal though. I think when people write something, there's write, rewrites and redrafts and, and things yeah. evolve and, and they change as you change. Yeah, I think so. I mean, like I was in a hurry to get it done. You know, sometimes like you can get stuck in re-edits and re-edits and re-edits and re-edits, right? So you don't want to do that either. That can be a problem also. Yeah, so that was my process of writing the book. <laughs> was it hard for you to write these extremely personal and painful um, things that happened in your life and share them? I mean, obviously, as a stand-up, you know that um, we share quite a bit on stage. My act is, is some people make up jokes, and they're not based in reality. Um, but as you and I both know, our acts are based very much yeah. in ourselves. So, And you have a lot of trauma, too. I do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's why we can relate. <laughs> I do. What I love about you is that you and I laugh, I think, at a lot of very dark things. Yeah. And um, as some of the podcast listeners know or longtime listeners know my podcast, sometimes I have very serious people on my podcast who are not comedians. And I'll laugh at the dark stuff because it makes me laugh. <laughs> and it comes off as so incredibly insensitive if, if the uh, guest does not have a good sense of humor. And I've listened to a couple of old episodes of mine. I'm like, wow, I kind of seem like a dick laughing at this person's like horrible thing that happened to them. Well. <laughs> but that's how, to me, all of the dark stuff is, is the funniest stuff because that's, yeah. that's the real life. It's real life. It's just so funny. I mean, oh, it's like so my, funny. Uh, it's the fucking uh, Michael joke, the ghosted joke. Like, I think that's hilarious. <laughs> I think, I think, you know, the darkest stuff is the funniest stuff, but sometimes that's the line. I think there's a, an, a line. And I think some people, uh, you're, if you have your right audience, they get you and, and other people don't, but, um, it, yeah. I think, I think writing about a lot of that dark stuff is very, um, empowering as well. I think so. I have this thing that I have, and it's been actually really good. I have a habit of, if I feel shame around any topic, I kind of generally like try to talk about it on stage. Uh, and I kind of make a habit of that as to kind of take the charge off the shameful feelings, right? Yeah. Uh, and it's effective. And um, 
So yeah, writing about Michael was was hard, but not like what was hard was like recounting. I almost blocked it out. It was so hard. His like, oh, the last days, man. Every single day, it was like conversations that sound like, hey, the doctor says you have a 10% chance of survival. Would you like to continue treatment or do you want to just be comfortable? Like, or I went to eight pharmacies and they're all out of Norco. Can you call your doctor and then we can get an order of oxycodone and we'll try that because they, they won't tell you whether they have it or not unless you show up in person because of the opioid crisis. So Michael's running out of time. He's got about an hour before he starts feeling extreme pain. I have to find whatever painkiller there is to make sure he doesn't. Otherwise, I have to take him to the emergency room. And what happens then? You know, it's, it's just, it was um, such a process. It was a painful process. And losing him was, it was just, it was, man. <laughs> I don't know, I'm laughing at it, you know, but, uh, yeah. Yeah, there's absolutely nothing like losing um, someone that you love very deeply. I've, I have not experienced the loss of a spouse, but I have lost people that I care about quite a bit. So I definitely understand. Yeah. Um, we do have to start wrapping up, though. So um, let's talk a little bit about where people can find the book and where what you're up to next. Okay, cool. So um, I have this so out of the book. Uh, at, I got this idea for at the end of each chapter, you flash a QR code and you end up on my website. It's a video blog that explains the, the, the topics of the chapter. And it's me talking to you just like this. It has the same background and everything. Right? <laughs> <laughs> Michael actually found this in the garbage. Uh, this looks like a million dollars, baby. Look up this artist. And I did. And this was a student work. But it looks, it makes me look so rich. <laughs> But uh, yeah, so you can uh, get a copy of my book and you can flash the QR code or actually those are available publicly. So I have a website, my website, AidenPark.com, and the website is dedicated actually to helping people feel better emotionally. So there's full of videos, full of content, full of resources, uh, and it's a fun website. So visit my website, AidenPark.com, and yeah, that's what I would suggest you do if you're so inclined. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys, check out Aiden's new book, The Art of Being Yay. It's available on Amazon. Um, I will have all the links on outoftheboxpodcast.com website. Guys, also check out my other new podcast, Rosie and BJ Save the World, the podcast where I take someone with a completely different point of view as I do, and we try to save the world's problems with my co-host, BJ Mendelson, who is an internet personality. Guys, this has been Out of the Box Podcast with Rosie Tran. I'm Rosie Tran. You can find me on Twitter at Funny Rosie, Out of the Box Rosie on Instagram. And that's it. Enjoy the show. Have a good day. Yay. Bye.